With just days remaining before the first anniversary of the death in police custody of Iran protest icon Masa Amini, VOA Persian TV host Masi Alinejad tells us what her sources are saying about the willingness of Iranians to confront their Islamist rulers once again. I see that Iranians are ready and telling each other, let's get back to the street. We have to end this regime, otherwise the regime will end each of us. And documents apparently leaked from a Russian drone factory provide new insights into Iran's role as a manufacturing partner. A Washington research group that reviewed the documents tells us what it learned about how well the two sides work together. I think when you get engineers talking to engineers, things work better. But there are these differences. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning, I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Iran's crackdown on peaceful dissent has extended to a new target, with rights groups reporting the arrest of the uncle of Masa Amini days before the first anniversary of her death. The report said Iranian security personnel detained Safa Ali on Tuesday at his home in the Iranian Kurdish city of Sakez, where Amini lived. There was no official word on Ali's fate or what prompted his arrest. His niece was a 22-year-old who died in police custody last September 16th, several days after morality police detained her in Tehran for allegedly not wearing her hijab in accordance with Islamist dress codes. Her death triggered months of the biggest protests Iran has seen since its ruling clerics seized power in 1979. Her father Amjad Amini told VOA Persian in an exclusive interview that his family will hold a ceremony to mark the anniversary of her death, despite authorities warning him not to invite people to participate. Masi Alinejad, host of VOA Persian's tablet show, regularly receives and shares videos from people in Iran who support peaceful protests for regime change. I spoke to her by phone last Thursday and asked which of the recent videos she thinks are the most significant. I have to say that all the videos that I received from Iranians inside gives me goosebumps, you know. They're so brave and powerful. It's not easy for me to pick only one. But yes, there is one woman actually sending a video saying that recently the Islamic Republic sentenced us to wash dead bodies for the crime of walking unveiled, for the crime of protesting against a job. And in this video, she says that, I'm ready. I'm ready to wash the dead body, but not bowing to the barbaric regime, you know? Let's have a, a quick listen to a few moments of that video. So, Masi, can you tell us what are we seeing in this video? A brave woman actually knows that she might receive long prison sentence. She knows that she might get arrested and beaten up by Iranian authorities. She knows that she might lose her job, but she is fearless. What I see, it's a true feminist actually trying to tell the rest of the world that we are wounded, but not broken unbowed, we are strong enough to end gender apartheid regime in Iran. What do you think is giving women like her 
the courage to do that, given all of the repressive measures we've seen over the last year and even in the last couple of weeks? That's a very good question, because, look, they have nothing to lose. Being a second class citizen, being a woman in Iran means that you must accept to be a slave, to obey all the discriminatory laws, or to be a warrior, to be a hero, to be a true fighter. So for millions of Iranian women, this is the case. And they don't want actually to follow the most oppressive clerics telling them what to wear, what kind of lifestyle to follow, how to think. So this is the decision being made by Iranian women to fight back the clerics instead of accepting discriminatory laws. Do you think we're going to see just individual acts of defiance in the coming days and weeks as we get closer to this anniversary of Masa Amini's death in custody? Or do you think we're going to see more collective gatherings of women and Iranians to protest against this government? Indeed, because Iranian women, as I see through social media and the videos that I myself received, getting ready, uh, spreading pamphlets around and calling on each other to take back to the streets. I mean, they pay huge price. Recently, the Islamic Republic arrested the family members of those who got killed in last year uprising. Like one of them, oh my God, it just breaks my heart. Uh, Mashallah Karami, the father of a young protester who got executed. Now they arrested the father. They actually killed Hanane Kia. They killed Siavash Mahmoudi, only 16 year old. And now they arrested the family members. They cement them and they warn them not to get back to the street. So clearly the Islamic Republic is scared of any potential uprising. And I see that Iranians are ready and telling each other that let's get back to the street. We have to end this regime. Otherwise, the regime will end each of us. The people who are spreading the pamphlets and trying to mobilize those public protests, surely they must know what kind of response could be awaiting them with the Iranian authorities already taking so many aggressive actions uh, in recent weeks to prevent protests. So how do they feel about the risk that they would take if they go out to the streets based on what Iranian security forces have done before? Of course, the level of oppression was really tense last year. More than 700 innocent protesters got killed. Many of them got executed. But you know what? Now the people of Iran, they made up their mind that as far as the Islamic Republic is in power, more people will suffer, more people will get killed. They know that. They risk their lives, but they want to have dignity. They want to have normal life. You know what? Here, I want to actually to ask you to let your audiences to hear another woman that I published her video on my page. This is the answer of your question. Please listen to this woman. How bravely in front of the camera of authorities and morality police, she is actually showing her face and saying that I am a woman. And the time that you managed to scare us 
is gone. I am a woman and I'm not scared of you. Okay, let's have a listen to that video clip. I have to say that that was your answer. You know, walking in the street, not even joining any protest is a danger if you are a woman. So for that, Iranian women and men believe that if they get together and end this regime, finally they will have dignity and they will have freedom to walk in the streets, to go to stadium, to sing, to dance and to have a normal life. Masi, knowing what you know about the Iranian government, how realistic do you think are their hopes, your hopes for people to have this freedom anytime soon? The Islamic Republic took everything away from us. From, I mean, I myself, I lost everything. My family, they took my homeland. They took my mother from me. I haven't hugged my family for like 13 years for the crime of just giving voice to voiceless people. So they even sent killers here on U.S. soil trying to get my life away from me. So they took everything away from us, but not hope, not hope. And that actually scares the regime, that the Iranian people are very hopeful that they will win this battle one day and we're going to have an Iran without the Islamic Republic, which everyone benefits from that, not just Iranians, people in the Middle East, people in the free world, democratic countries will benefit from an Iran without these barbaric mullahs, without these killers. Can you also tell our audience about your show for VOA Persian, the tablet program? How do you deal with these issues on the show and what kind of response are you getting from the audience? You know, I use the platform to give voice to Iranian people who never have the chance to be heard on their own media inside the country. And I keep receiving videos from people, although they know that the authorities in Iran created a law saying that if anyone sends videos to Masi Alinejad will be charged up to 10 years prison. Can you believe that? I remember the day, the day when actually the head of, you know, the revolutionary court appeared on TV and said that don't send videos to Masi because she is the enemy of the state. She works for VOA. So if you send the videos, we will arrest you and send you to prison up to 10 years. I was bombarded by videos from mothers. It seemed to backfire, basically. Exactly. To be honest, you know, cut my voice and air one of these brave mothers who actually went in the street by holding a picture of her beloved one and, and, and saying that, I'm not scared of you. You killed my son here in the street and now I am the voice of my son and I'm gonna continue my fight until the day that I end this regime. These are the true face of Iranian women, Iranian people, that I want the U.S. people, I want the U.S. government to recognize their fight. Masi Alinejad, host of VOA Persians tablet program. Thank you so much for being with us on Flashpoint Iran and sharing uh, that message of hope with our audience. 
Thank you so much for having me. I hope one day I can invite you to my beautiful country, Iran. I would love to go there someday. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Marcy. Now that's my dream to invite all my colleagues to come and visit Iran when you're not, you know, getting arrested or getting bitten up by the government. Thank you so much and uh, stay in touch. Women in Iran who were killed in the past year as they engaged in peaceful resistance to Islamist rule were the focus of a recent exhibition in the U.S. city of Rockville, Maryland. As we hear from VOA's Julie Tabo, the exhibit paid tribute to those Iranian women through art. A series of hands appear to rise from the floor in this exhibition at a gallery near Washington. They're still and silent, but pack a powerful message. Each bears the name of one of the hundreds of victims killed in Iran for being involved with protests following the death of Mahsa Gina Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman who was arrested, imprisoned, and who subsequently died in the custody of Iran's morality police in September 2022, after she allegedly violated the strict dress code to cover her hair. Her death triggered widespread protests throughout the country, which inspired artist Kiana Honarmad. She spoke with VOA via Skype. Just uh, watching the violence was absolutely devastating to see so many people, including men, women, children, getting killed and thousands arrested. Honarman's work pays homage to the demonstrators, whose woman, life, freedom protests evolved into a powerful movement across Iran and other parts of the world. I just had to talk about this because it's um, the largest, the most significant feminist movement of our time, and it's not talked about as much as it needs to be. The words woman, life, freedom, displayed in a repetitive pattern on the windows, and locks of hair mounted on the gallery walls are also symbolic. Right at the beginning of the protests, many, many women took to the streets and they were very angry, both at Massa's murder, but also at the way that the government was um, handling the protests. So they started cutting off their hair as an act of protest, and that uh, was something that caught on. and. Many women across the world started cutting off their hair in solidarity with Iran Iranian women. So I wanted to reference that with the hair. Andrea Barron was visiting the gallery from Camp Springs, Maryland. What resonated for me very much was seeing a hair all over the walls here because hair has been so central to the struggle for Iranian women and their freedom. And the hands, because it showed these bloody hands symbolizing how much violence there has been against women who want their rights in Iran. I think now more than ever, we need to really stand up for women's rights everywhere. It's been absolutely uh, inspiring to watch what women in Iran are doing now, even every day with the simple acts of disobedience, such as just going outside, not wearing their compulsory hijabs. They are very courageous and uh, I am just in awe of that. Honarman says her goal is to continue making hands, one for each victim of the protests whose death has been confirmed. Julie Tabo, VOA News, Rockville, Maryland. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. 
The Washington Post reported last month that it uncovered new details of a Russian program to mass-produce Iranian attack drones that Western powers say Moscow has used frequently in its war against Ukraine. The paper said it obtained leaked documents from the program, which is centered on a facility in the Russian Republic of Tatarstan's Alabuga Special Economic Zone. The paper shared the documents with the Washington-based Institute for Science and International Security, which said they appear to be authentic. The institute said the documents show Russian project managers setting a goal for Alabuga to produce 6,000 copies of Iran's Shahed-136 drone by mid-2025, despite facing numerous obstacles. David Albright is president of the institute and reviewed the documents. I asked him by phone why the Russians appear to have been so ambitious with their drone production target. The timeline is actually part of the contract that Alabuga signed with the Ministry of Defense. So it's the commitment to meet those deadlines. It also, Alabuga was desperate for work and it was trying to establish that it could do these things very quickly. So there is a there's a bit of smoke and mirrors on Alabuga's part. So are you saying there's like a profit motive here? It's all profit motive from Alabuga's point of view that they ran a special economic zone, which was all civilian, involved civilian industries, many of which from other countries. And, and the war collapsed much of that uh, work as the Western industries pulled out, Ford, 3M, I mean, major, major companies. And so their whole profit motive was based on having these companies come into this special economic zone, rent factories, space, and and that goes away. And they decided that they would try to become experts in manufacturing particular types of drones. And they settled on this kamikaze-style Shaheen 136, and they would do it in partnership with Iran. And so I think they're clearly trying to exaggerate what they can do. And I can give an example where the first thing that Alabuga wanted to learn how to do is make the airframe, the outer body of the drone. And they would depend on Iranian technology, technology being designs and instruction manuals, being able to go to where Iran makes those things and get hands-on experience. And Iran delayed providing the drawings. And when they did provide them, they were in paper. They weren't digitized, and Alabuga has to digitize. And so right from the start, and the start of the contract was essentially January 2nd, 2023, right from the start, they were faced with a basically waiting to get the designs from Iran, and they didn't get them until March. So the right from the beginning, they have a month, month and a half delay in the contract. And so your instinct is probably right that Alabuga kind of sold a bill of goods to the Ministry of Defense, which is at war, desperate for these kamikaze drones, and Alabuga promised to do it. Could I just ask, why would the Russian Defense Ministry take a chance on a special economic zone project that wasn't producing military drones before. So that would involve a big change in the mode of production and the type of staffing expertise needed. Why would they take a chance on that? Well, I should define what Alabuga is. It's a joint stockholder company where the two stockholders are the Russian government 
and the state of Tartistan. And so it's a government entity. And so it's one part of the government saying, look, we're going to help your war effort. We'll take our civilian experts and we'll learn how to make Shahid-136 drone copies. And we'll do it in mass production. Iran's drone production of Shahid-136 is it's by no means mass production. And it's not even, the production quality isn't even very good. Drone airframes, which are you know, the body of this aircraft, can actually be quite different, even when they're part of the same generation of designs. And so they don't even bother replicating a design. They'll make modifications as they make it. And the Russians at Alabuga detected this. And Alabuga wants to say, look, we want to finalize a design, learn how to make it ourselves in a stepwise manner, component by component, and then we'll mass produce them. So we can give you many more of these Shahid-136 drones than Iran could ever do. And so that was appealing to the army, Russian army. And we hope Alabuga fails, obviously, that they've overstretched. And we want to add to that, try to disrupt their supply chain, because the documents show that they're heavily dependent on Western uh, microelectronics and other components for this drone. I wanted to ask you about the quality of cooperation between Iran and Russia, because we've been hearing for a while that they're coordinating on their military efforts, yet these documents seem to show some tension. So what can you infer from these documents about how well Iran and Russia are working together? Well, I think they're working together well. Iran's motivation is also money. I mean, we didn't see this in the documents, but the Washington Post journalists told me that uh, they think Iran got a billion dollars for this transfer of first 600 disassembled drones. And then sort of after the Alabuga learns how to make the airframe, enough of the components, motors, high explosive components in the navigation systems for about another 1,300. And then Alabuga would become mostly indigenous after that to finish out uh, the production of 6,000. So it's a, a lucrative contract for Iran and they, they need money. Now, in terms of the cooperation, one of the things that interfered in the transfer of, of, let's say, airframe design documents was initially the cooperation was set up between the Ministry of Defense and Iran. And so Alabuga would have to go to the Ministry of Defense, make a request that goes to Iran. Iran responds to the Ministry of Defense and then it goes to Alabuga. They quickly decided that that doesn't work. And so they set up direct communication uh, Alabuga set up direct communication with Iran, and that was working by March of 2023. So do you get the impression that after all of these initial hiccups, that the Iranians and the Russians are working together better in producing these drones? I think when you get engineers talking to engineers, things work better. Get the high level politicians, you know, military officials out of it, then, then it'll work better. But there are these differences. And the engineers at Alabuga would note that what they were being provided you know, was varying. Even though it's supposed to be identical, it would have differences between you know two drones. And when they were sending the 600, many were damaged. When they arrived in Russia, they were defective. They even slipped in 
They're supposed to only send Shahid 136. They sent a bunch of 131s, much smaller ones, not nearly as useful, have much smaller high explosive on the front end. So that certainly creates tension. And at one point during this process, you know, the Al-Pubaj just said to, you know, Ron, we need to get you to send us the stuff so we can repair the broken drones you've sent us. So clearly there's tension and Iran does business in its own particular way. And it probably feels some power that uh, Russia needs this and they're going to try to get as much money out of it and they don't feel bad about providing shoddy goods. That was David Albright of the Institute for Science and International Security. We'll have part two of that conversation in next week's program. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Michael Lippin. Thanks for listening and join me again next week for another Flashpoint Iran. Flashpoint Iran.